Our scripture today is from Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, way back in 1951, there was a, a British author by the name of Graham Greene who wrote a book called The End of the Affair. It's a novel that tells the story uh, of an extramarital affair that happened between a journalist, which is not so subtly patterned after the author of the book, and the wife of his close friend. Uh, her name was Sarah, and her marriage apparently to her husband had long since turned routine and boring. Well, the journalist, whose name goes by Maurice in the story, and Sarah, they ostensibly fall madly in love and carry on their affair in a bunch of sneaky secrecy among each other. And things, of course, go on unabated until suddenly Sarah, at the beginning of the book, breaks off the relationship. Uh, Maurice actually warns the reader at the outset of the story that, quote, this is a record of hate far more than that of love. Why? Well, because as the affair ends, Maurice actually runs into Sarah's husband, who of course has no idea, but who has begun to suspect that his, his wife is having an affair. Well, at this point, Maurice grows insanely jealous, so much so that he actually encourages the husband to investigate who he thinks his wife is having an affair with, wondering who it was that she decided to have an affair with after she broke up with him. The novel goes on to detail how Maurice processes this obsession with Sarah. And he says at one point this, he says, I refuse to believe that love could take on any other form than mine. I measured my love by the extent of my jealousy. So it turns out, I think, from the book, that there was no amount of sexual satisfaction that was going to provide reassurance enough that Sarah was going to be devoted to him alone. In many ways, I kind of want to entertain one question this morning with that, and that is, why? Hold that thought for a second. Because we're walking this semester through this rather vivid self-disclosure of God's character as they come to us in the Ten Commandments. And what we're finding is all of the things that are near and dear to his heart. And this morning what we're going to find is, is that these Israelites, as they leave Egypt have a view of human relationships that is, that is so warped and so twisted that God has to begin to explain to them the nature and the essence of a family. Likely very much for the first time. And so he says very simply, in literal translation, no adultery. That's the command. In other words, God is saying, you don't know me until you understand the fidelity, the faithfulness that I exercise towards my people. So the world is not going to know that when I establish my covenant bond towards those I love the most, with this incredibly vivid symbol of, symbol of intimacy that we call sexuality, then people are not going to know what to do when you abuse that gift and use it for someone else other than the person that you committed to share it with. So what you uncover in the seventh commandment is this simple fact, that we follow and worship a God who is supremely self-giving. That is, He exists to give Himself away rather than take on the role of the selfish Egyptian deities who constantly were asking for a sacrifice or a, or a pound of flesh for, for sheer appeasement's sake 
Which, by the way, is exactly what's going on with Maurice in the end of the affair. Lust, he realizes, roots a relationship in consumption. But in God's version of the perfect family, self-giving is what creates the essence, not selfish taking. There's a fascinating passage in 2 Samuel chapter 13 that tells this really uh, dark tale of how King David's family began to splinter after his affair with Bathsheba. The story finds one of David's sons by the name of Amnon who falls madly in lust with his half-sister Tamar. And of course, after carefully plotting to work her into a very vulnerable position, he rapes her. But the fascinating thing is, at the end of that is, in verse 15, we find he changes. And it gives us this amazing picture into how human sexuality works. Because the verse there says, Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. Now, how do you explain that? Well, I can give you a hint. It's not because Amnon fell out of love with Tamar, any more than Maurice somehow stopped caring for Sarah. The truth is, whether it's Amnon, Maurice, or any other person in a sexual relationship, the lines that appear between a person's sexual relationship and a healthy exercise of, 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 of sexuality in their marriage can oftentimes turn into misunderstanding and shameful perversion, and they can be so hard to discern sometimes. My premise this morning is, is that you simply cannot talk about human flourishing until you consider how our sexuality either contributes to that flourishing or it diminishes that flourishing. I find it a very curious feature of our sexual selves. While we live in a day where the boundaries of orthodox sexuality are being tampered with, dare I say, trampled upon year after year, we suddenly are less concerned about having any kind of meaningful conversation about the foundations of human sexuality as it comes to us in the Bible. So that's why we're going to do two weeks on this. I want to look this week at sexuality created, and the next week we'll look at sexuality corrupted and the way in which it misforms itself. But this morning, I just want to outline three sort of ideas. I want to look at the maze of sexuality the power of sexuality, and then finally, the purpose of our sexuality. First of all, the maze. Look, I, I realize this point may be not even hardly worth mentioning, but I do think it's worth noticing the simplicity of this command. No adultery. And honestly, my guess is it probably looks downright quaint to someone who looks at the powerful confusion that swirls around even Bible-believing people in our world today. And what I want to do is attempt to unpack this uh, generationally, if we will, because nowhere do you see the generation gap widening between the older and younger generation than when you start to talk about human sexuality. I think that's apparent. Let's start for a second with the older generation. You know, I spent years trying to beg uh, college students to be patient with their older generation, the sort of uh, generation above them. For, for no other reason then is because the last few years have seen these, these tectonic changes in, in the way in which this generation processes sex, but it's come at such a blindingly fast rate that most time in older generation, their heads just kind of start to spin whenever you bring up the topic. I'm sure that the internet probably created some uh, ability for that to happen, but that's another discussion for another time. 
But the older generation, I think, is much more likely to sort of be very uncomfortable with changing sexual mores in the last decade or two than it ever was in any time before. I mean, LGBT discussions, even when I was in high school, were far more taboo than they are now. But what happens is that those older taboos start to look like a better generation to an older crowd. In other words, it makes the old days just, they were just more chaste. They were more pure back in those days, which of course is patently false, just because the sexual dysfunction wasn't celebrated the way in which it is now uh, in the old days, as it were, doesn't mean that it wasn't happening. You know, the idea that the old days were better in terms of raw habits, I think has been disproven by the statistics. You know, teen pregnancies and even risky teen sex are down almost 20% in the last three decades. And of course, who knows who causes that? But I feel like the older generation would be the one who will say, yeah, well, whatever. You know, back in my day, men were men and women were women. And they'll tell you that manhood back in those days was so much less complicated, you know, straightforward than it is now. But look, let's, let's be honest. If there's anything that the Me Too movement has uncovered, it's that the older generation's sort of version of masculinity could oftentimes be ex- exploitive and cruel. Have we overcorrected since that time in the movement? Maybe, but at least we can say that there's probably not a lot of room for condescension as we look at the younger generation and where sex tends to drift these days. Okay, so that's the older generation. What about the younger generation? Well, I think you're experiencing these tectonic changes in ways that have made us question the very idea of sexuality, certainly gender. Today, it's, it's accepted as commonplace for all of our children uh, that gender is, is merely a construct, or at least at the very least on some kind of spectrum. I mean, who is to say whether your gender corresponds to your biologically assigned sex or not? Young people are encouraged to, to explore any option, all the way from, from, from what we call pansexuality, which is attraction to people with no regard to their gender, all the way to asexuality, which is no sexual interest whatsoever. But of course, as enlightened as this generation, I think, feels and they'd like to fancy themselves, there's still signs, I think, that the cracks are forming. Not the least of which is the dramatic decline from that generation in marital sex. That is, there's an epidemic going on, not just of COVID, but also of married couples not engaging in sexual activity, epidemic-wise. And of course, it comes as a great shock to some that the sexual bonanza, I think, that the older generation expected with the loosening of sexual mores happens to be just the opposite. This less and less young people are engaging in sex at all. There's a great sexual decline both in practice, regardless of what goes on behind closed doors and in isolation. Look, what's the idea? My premise is there's few times we can look back in which a culture is experiencing more massive confusion not just about sex itself, but about what it even means to be a man or a woman. What is biblical? What's not? What's fluid and what is certain? So again, drop into that, this confusion, that simplicity, no adultery. Is that hopelessly simplistic? Or is that commandment have in it buried a massive principle that once you plant it inside the human self and you begin to work through it, 
that it radically recasts sexuality under God's design, which in a way I think that might surprise you. So the first point is that we live in a maze of sexuality. Secondly, though, we have to comprehend the power of sexuality. And I think I can state it briefly that the power of sexuality rests in the fact that as it is enacted, um, it works its magic, whether the person realizes it or not. First, what is that magic? Well, simply, the magic is to make two one. In 1 Corinthians 6, 16, Paul says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. What does he mean? Well, among other things, he means that there is a mystical union that takes place between two people who engage in sex, no matter what your personal care is for that person. By way of illustration, I think of, I think of super glue because I'm fascinated by super glue. Super glue does what? It bonds in seconds, right? But the power and the tenacity of super glue is simply this. If you get some on your hand, your skin is coming off before the super glue will lose its bond. But here's what's interesting. I don't have to understand how super glue works for it to do its thing. And likewise, sex has this incredible ability to build a bond or to reaffirm and constitute a bond between a man and woman in marriage. But you don't have to know how it works in order for it to do so. That's the magic. This is one of the reasons why we refer to the honeymoon as the consummation of the marriage. Something was declared to be true. This happened just yesterday here at the altar. But of course, at the honeymoon, that's where sort of that, that, that enactment is sort of made true and held fast. In other words, sexuality makes promises, and those promises are tied to sex's purpose. They bond you with that person. And like superglue, you don't really have to know how it works in order for it to do so. Look, hopefully, this little insight will help you understand why the Bible talks about sex the way in which it does. And you can see now why it is that sex outside of the bonds of marriage is always a lie. It can only ever be a lie. Why? Because sex makes these promises while you engage in it that feel like heaven. Why? Because it's saying to us, I'm here for good. I'm always going to be here. You and I are deeply and powerfully bound to each other. But if you are not married and you don't have the covenant bond that institutes that, then it has to be a lie. The Bible doesn't know anything about casual sex. No sex is casual any more than nitroglycerin is casual. It's always going to do something because it's inherently dangerous to be used for purposes other than what it was designed for. Back in the 90s, there was a a folk singer that I used to listen to named David Wilcox who wrote a song that a chorus that went, went like this. He said, now you can say that you always were honest and that your words were clear from the start. But it's more than just words that got spoken. It was language of the heart. What's he saying? He's saying sex created bonds. And when those bonds were broken, people got hurt. Lots of people got hurt. So the power of sexuality is it sort of institutes and makes this bond. 
We also see the maze of sexuality. But finally, I want to consider the purpose of sexuality. Look, the Bible has a very positive view of sex. We'll talk about that next week, despite its reputation. But oftentimes, the reason why people misconstrue it is because they don't know what the biblical purpose of sex actually is. And as it turns out, there's there's a number of peripheral reasons why sexuality exists. Not the least of which, first, I would say, is, is for procreation. Genesis 1, 28 says, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So there's a sense in which one of the main purposes of our sexuality is to propagate the race, <laughs> create children, to push forward the, uh, the race of peoples. Secondly, however, I think there is a clear expression in Scripture of a recreational approach to sexuality. That is sex for the sheer enjoyment of it. You know, the Old Testament has written in it an extended love poem that we call the Song of Solomon. And in chapter 3, verse 4, it has the bride saying at one point this. She says, I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and I would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. Here what you have. You have a woman who is celebrating the marriage bed and how excited she is to take her man there. So yes, there is a purpose, that purpose in sex in the sheer enjoyment of it all. I do recognize there's a common myth, I think, operative in most of people of the reading that I've done in the last couple of years that sort of states that, I don't know, men tend to be, uh, I don't know, more sexually interested than women are. And, and of course, regardless of where that came from, I simply want to say it's not biblical. My guess is that with a contrast between how men and women in their differences approach sex is oftentimes being mistaken for disinterest in women, but I digress. But thirdly, the most profound reason, I think, for God's creation of sexuality is communication. It's not just procreation and recreation, but communication. Look, Genesis 2, I think, unlocks this this profound geometry between a man and a woman. Because it says in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What's the point? It means that in sex, we are saying something to our spouses. Well, what are we saying? Well, it ought to be obvious. It's saying you and I are knit together. We are one flesh. Sex is a way of saying to the other person, hey, I'm still here. I'm still engaged. This is the reason why sex only works between one man and one woman in an exclusive permanent and complete covenant of relationship that the Bible calls marriage. God invents this way for one person to say to another person, I am completely and exclusively yours. And here's this amazing sacrament to celebrate as much. Again, why is this so? Well, you know, we've talked about this before. Because marriage is an object lesson. In the first chapter of Genesis, we find that God creates everything, and He says that all of it's good except for one thing, and that is that man should be alone. Why? Because man was created in the image of a God who is himself, in his own self-definition, a relationship. So that the Christian doctrine of the Trinity shows that God created mankind to image, to image Him to show this exclusive, permanent, and complete bond that existed between the members of the Trinity from before the foundations of the earth. 
And so the best way to kind of get that kind of God is by God instituting this thing he calls marriage. And so our sex life is this way of reaffirming. It's a way of restating, even reestablishing that bond. Look, you don't have to be instructed on this, but don't you realize that there are a thousand different things in a given week or month of marriage that threaten to undo you as a relationship, aren't there? There's your children. Your children are there to divide you, by the way. Have you not discovered this? Your job. Our, our competing self, uh, uh, schedules, our selfishness. But every so often, God tells married people to come together on the marriage bed as a way of looking and saying, hey, I'm still here. I know what happened last week. I know what I said to you last week, but you know what? I've not left. I've not left. Honestly, I think nothing could be more countercultural than that simple notion Sex these days is about my needs, my satisfaction, my orientation. But from the outset, we set ourselves up to be disappointed because I would argue sex only works as a giving, sacrificial thing. You know, in marriage, you're either, you're either giving or you're consuming, are you not? If you look at your spouse as if they're an object, they're there to serve you. They're there to meet your needs. They're, they're there to be acted upon. My guess is that your sex life is suffering for it. Others of you, though, you look at your spouse as if they're like a subject. There's something to be known. There's something to be interacted with, to share life with. And that, as it turns out, is a bedrock for great sex. So how do you view each other? I do think that's where you begin to start to unpack the maze of sexual dysfunction that we find ourselves in. More on that next week. But, you know, I read a number of years ago a wonderful little book by Lauren Winter, uh, who drew some interesting ideas from modern agrarian Wendell Berry uh, about what, uh, in her book, Real Sex, The Naked Truth About Chastity, where she kind of challenges this notion that the purpose of sex is the, is the thrill ride, as it were. And she borrows Wendell Berry, who says that there ought to be something that we just call household sex. Sex, he says, is more about community building than it is about the thrill of an experience. Because as long as the purpose of sex is this mind-blowing experience, what's going to happen is, is it'll dissipate over time. You'll get bored with it, just like any other thing. But what happens, Winter begins to entertain, if sex was dethroned, as it were, from that kind of conception and placed into the realm of simple, regular, faithful responsibility? It's just a responsibility. Does it make it any less meaningful? Of course not. Winter actually says sex is so much better this way. Listen to what she says. She says, what if our task is not to cultivate these moments when erotic love can whisk us away from our ordinary routines, but rather to love each other as erotic love becomes embedded in and transformed by the daily warp and woof of married life. For in household sexuality, we see all of the ways in which our daily struggles offer us the only language we have to call ourselves to God's grace. Ooh, did you hear that? Sexuality is a way of giving us a language of returning to God. How? Well, think of it this way. God gave human beings sexuality 
Because His design for us is that we would be ever overflowing with a sense of a God who is ecstatic with His people. In other words, you're going to be a terrible lover if you don't get this fact that at the heart of the universe there is a God who wants regularly to tell you, I'm still here. I know what you did this week. I know what you've said about me. But I forgive you. Now come, come be with me. If that language is too graphic for you, I would invite you to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, where Paul is talking about the various temptations that the Corinthians face when he looks at this pastoral intentions for him. When he uncorks this, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Is that graphic enough for you? I think it's actually more so when you begin to realize that the Corinthian church was known as a sexually debaucherous culture. And yet, what does Paul call them? Pure virgins. See what he's doing? He's saying, Jesus has made you pure. And so he encourages them to put away their temptation to worship other gods by appealing to the purity that Jesus has established in them. Regardless of whatever sexual baggage you bring into this room this morning. No matter where you find yourself. It's as if he's saying, I'm still here. I know your sexual brokenness. I know your sexual infidelity. I know your betrayal. But I've made you a pure virgin because of my work on the cross. I've made you pure. Are you starting to notice the parallels, by the way? (laughs) Between human sexuality and what we're about to celebrate at this table. Because there's a sense that the meaning of this table is the God of the universe saying the same thing. We come on a periodic basis at least once a month to celebrate the fact that He has called us forward to experience an amazing act of intimacy, do we not? Because we literally take something into our bodies that celebrates the fact that His body and blood were were broken and shed for us. So that regardless of whatever baggage you bring in here this morning, you come as pure virgins to one day be presented to our great bridegroom. Sorry, gentlemen, we are all feminine to Him. But as the bride of Christ, we go forth pure. No matter where you find yourself this morning, no matter how much shame encapsulates around us. My simple question for you is this. Is there any space in your imagination to think about God in that way? Because if it's not, then we are less than biblical. And if not, it might be that sex will be an endlessly empty experience. I want you to entertain that thought. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I realize that even the very mention of this topic, how there are oceans of shame that well up inside of your people, inside of those who look back at even shockingly recent experiences where their sexuality has gone awry, so much unwanted sexual behavior. Father, we we pray that you would reaffirm, reconstitute, reestablish on the basis of your work on the cross this bond that exists between you and your people, that, Father, as we, as we, as we, we taste the bread on our tongues, and as we allow the, the, the drink to be poured down our throats, with the sensation of those two things, remind us that you have drawn near, that your unfailing love, your hesed, 
has bound yourself to us in the glorious experience of the marriage of Christ and His church. Would you celebrate that for us? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.